0: Lost is one of those shows that almost got away from me, but is not going to be able to get away from me for too much longer. Because in the next several episodes, I am going to cover this series from the beginning all the way to season six. I am enjoying it immensely. The quality of writing, it astounds me that people, meaning the entertainment industry on a whole, has decided that quality writing is no longer good enough for our time. That is such a shame that in order for me to be entertained, I have to have one foot back in the past. And I have to have the other foot skeptically searching for what I can find today. Lost is one of those series as of right now, as of season two. I'm officially in season three, but we're going to cover seasons one and two. It is a good show. I can change my mind. They can change my mind. But right now, it's good. If you have never delved into the world of Lost, you will not be disappointed. And if you would like to dive into the world of Lost with me, your bookie, then strap in and let's take a ride. Season one of Lost is one that is going to pull you in from the very beginning because what precipitates their Lost positioning is extremely enthralling. What happens in Lost is that a flight coming from Australia tanks, it crashes and it lands in a let's just say on an island in a jungle and the opening scene shows us the leader of our pack which is Jack Shepard. Jack Shepard springs into action and begins to do his thing and by doing his thing I mean he gets up and the last person he is concerned about is himself He immediately begins to help people, to fix their wounds, to look for medicine, to utilize anything in the wreckage of the plane crash that he can find in order to help the people. It's not hard to understand when it's revealed that Jack was a spine surgeon. He has doctor, leader, Uh, achiever, capable, written all over everything that he does. Jack Shepard is a man that you would want to be stranded on a desert island with because he is going to work taking care of everything. No matter what it is, he is going to be there leading the effort Jack notes that as a surgeon, um, one of the most memorable things that I can remember about season one, which I watched not too long ago, guys, but <laughs> was that he was recanting this story about his first time as a spinal surgeon to one of the women on the island whose name is Kate. She's a lead actress and she's I want to say for all intent and purposes, she is his right hand woman. She's just they began to help people together right off the bat in episode one. But he's got to do ghetto surgery on somebody. You know the kind of surgery that's done on you when you're not in the hospital, stretched out on the bed in the OR with nice BB machines and you know nice sterile conditions. He's got to do it right there on the sand. He has got to break it down. But while he's breaking down, Kate's breaking down because Kate is a normal well let me just say Kate is not a surgeon and this environment of opening people up slicing them dicing them and you know wrapping them up and stitching them up this is what he does this is not what 99.9 percent of people do so he recants this story about how on his first spinal surgery which was of a teenage girl 15 or 16 years old He cut into her and unfortunately, he caused for all of the veins or whatever you want to call them to spill out of her. Think about a bowl of spaghetti spilling out of a person. I know that's gross, like angel hair. And he's shaking and he's thinking to himself, OMG, I don't know what the hell. But he decides in that moment because this person's life is literally in his hands. That he's got to get his shit together. I am a surgeon. I can't be sitting around here. Skirting him of She is being. Fixed by me. Or either I'm a killer. So he agrees. He makes a a pact with himself. Where he says. I will give myself five seconds. Five. Not minutes. Now I might need a couple more than five seconds. I'm going to give myself over. Totally to the fear. At the end of this five seconds, I no longer have permission to be afraid. This story is something that Kate internalizes and she takes it with her. And she uses it in the early days of the island to enable her to do the unthinkable. And the unthinkable merely consists of her having to rise to occasions that nobody in the normal course of their lives would ever have to arise to. Yet, fear is really not an option when you are fighting second by second to survive. Survival and fear do not bode well unless you want to die. Kate wanting to live has decided that she's going to internalize This bit of advice and use it to propel her forward to continue to do all of the let's just say life saving efforts that they're doing because understand that when that plane goes down not only does it go down and crash which is bad enough for me but it splits in two before it crashes so you have let's just say the front of the plane And then you have the back of the plane. They're in two different sections of this island. Kate and John or Jack and the others that I'm going to expose in this episode, they were all in the front section. So all around them are people howling and groaning, fires that need to be put out suitcases splayed open with paraphernalia splinters of wood shrapnel inside of people's abdomens that they that the doctor has to surgically remove find a way to stop this person from bleeding to death and then locate some antibiotics to try to keep them from becoming infected so you can imagine the mayhem the chaos that these people have to consist inside of. Kate, Jack, and some others that I'm going to name pretty much landed without incident. Those who were maimed died. Those who were not maimed died a little bit slower, but they still ended up succumbing to their injuries. So the first several days on the island... Consists of them bringing some order to the chaos. Stitching people up. Attempting to get those that need to be stitched up literally and figuratively. Stabilized. Those who can stabilize and recover do. But those are typically the people that aren't unconscious and don't have shrapnel hanging out of their abdomens. They're people that just have perhaps a gash that can be sewed up and have... One of the complimentary, you know, the shooter bottles of liquor poured over it for some antiseptic. Anything beyond a scratch or a bump, you pretty much gone because Jack is only one person. He's the only doctor. And even he has to do these ghetto surgical procedures that even if he was outside, just outside on the sidewalk, he wouldn't want to do it there, let alone stranded on a desert island. Kate as I have already said is a woman who is basically effectually Jack's right hand woman. Kate is a character that you can tell is going to be somebody's love interest and the most obvious person seems like Jack but I have learned my lesson the bitter way especially doing this podcast and maybe you know and I guess in my personal viewing too that Bookie, unless you are within the realm of explicit romance, do not ship anybody. I don't give a damn if they are getting it in right in front of you. They're not together. They don't love each other. And why am I saying all of this this is your first time here? I be devastated. baby. Y'all devastate me. And I am tired of being devastated. Because when I look at a show, I am in it as a creative person. So I really go into it. And when it's bad, I'm in it. And when it's good, I'm in it. when it's so-so, I'm in it. So you guys are not going to keep breaking my heart and stumping all over it. No. So I just kind of stay away from the ships. Now, wait. Where I might not ship y'all, I'm not going to act like, you know, I don't notice that y'all be giving each other the eye every time y'all around each other. Kate and Jack do that both attractive young-ish and they are stranded on a desert island the worst formula for creating a relationship that you didn't already have because you know desperation be making you ship with folks that's like oh you ain't supposed to be shipping with them nevertheless we have Kate the great a great um It's very difficult to flashback well. Whether you're writing a book or telling a story, especially in cinematic form, it's very difficult to get away. People don't like to let you get away with flashbacking. Lost is one of those shows that would be lost if it wasn't for any flashbacks. Flashbacks are as much a vital necessity in the show Lost as um, water for rain you don't have no water you ain't got no rain you don't have no flashbacks you're missing one of the legs of lost Kate is a woman that to look at her you would assume wrong you're just where Jack is that guy that you can assume Jack is that guy when he opens his mouth is like yep I knew you were gonna say what you were gonna say and I knew you were gonna say it how you said it Kate's one of those people where if you assume with her, you're going to be wrong 10 out of 10 times. And the reason you're going to be wrong 10 out of 10 times is because what she looks like she's going to do, she does it. But the reasons why she does what she does, you'll never know. So Kate, she's one of those people who have a lot of mystery surrounding her. She is a person who is in a, a very effective chameleon. The best way I can describe Kate is as, a, like I said, a youngish woman who you don't, when you find out about the things that she's been into, say for instance, she comes from, a, she's a small town girl who, from my assessment, has always had aspirations way bigger than her britches. She's not a very large woman either. And Kate, knowing that she had aspirations outside of that little small podunk town she came from, she used her assets to her own gain. But she didn't do it in a, hi, I'm a slut way, so let me just slut my way out of the little town. She actually used her attractiveness in an intelligent way. I don't want to say Kate is very, is. I don't want to say Kate is rocket science level smart. However, I I have noticed that her look is so disarming to her male accountants that they never suspect that she's ever in on anything that she is doing. So Kate is almost like, A woman who is pretending to be a badass, but actually means it. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the two twenty version, the 2022 version of Kate would be on scene, picking up the plane, throwing it in the ocean, and then swimming everybody back to whatever country you came from, she gonna swim you back to the motherfucker on her back. That's what the writers of today would do with Kate. What the writers of 2004, which is when this show started, did with Kate, was they took her and they sat her in a bank with casual chic clothes on, sitting across from a bank manager, talking about how she wanted this loan so she can start this photography company and he's interested and he's interested, interested, but she's not like flashing her cleavage. She's not bending over, showing her ass. She's just sitting there as an affable, winsome young woman who is able to garner the trust of people that she's not really even trying that hard to garner the trust of. But the reality is that in about 2.5 seconds, some men are going to come into the bank and pretend to rob it. No, they're not pretending to rob it, but she is going to pretend to be one of their hostages. And so when she goes back, to the hostage room with the hostage taker they kissing on each other they freaking on each other and it's like oh so y'all together so this was set up so she goes back out to the general crowd and they threaten to kill her and since the bank manager or the loan officer was actually interested he all in love already like this dude love her so much already it's like uh-uh don't take her don't do that here here's the key or whatever he wants the key to the vault that the bank officer has been holding not. He's been holding out because he's stupid, but he's been holding out as long as he possibly could. But when he came to Kate, which was not her name and isn't her name, in um bank heist, he could not stand the idea of them hurting her, so he gave them the key. Now the reason why I say Kate is somebody you'll never know where, where her ends in end and where her beginnings begin, is because. No sooner than the boyfriend or the guy that she pretended like she was with, with for the um the hostages, as far as they're concerned, she's with. She, you know, she would be with him if they would expose that. No sooner than they have this safe open and have packed the bags and have it in a nice, neat pile ready to go, does she turn on the guy that she was freaking on and takes the money and incapacitates them and gets out of town. Yes, so Kate kate is playing triple jeopardy at all times and kate is also playing triple jeopardy while she's on this desert island because she can't play straight ball because kate was on the plane from australia because she was being extradited to go back to the united states if i'm not mistaken i think the leaving australia if you notice a technical issue or just like a gap of silence In this episode, that is my bad. Sorry, guys. I'm not trying to do that. But back to Kate, she is not that person that you can trust. And the unfortunate thing is Jack notices it extremely quickly because she was being extradited by she was being escorted by a marshal. She was under arrest because she had been a fugitive she had robbed that bank. And as a result of robbing that bank, she'd gone on the run. As a result of going on the run, she went and she stayed in this country farm with this guy who hired her to do random farmhand work. And as old and unassuming as he was, he was actually in it to double cross Kate because no sooner than she got the notion that she needs to keep it popping and move he offered or let's just say urged her beyond what she was comfortable with to let him give her a ride to the train station and because he's he was an old old man you know what i'm saying like not a hundred but old people have the benefit of being low-key So, you know, they not on your radar or what have you. But that is what makes them the perfect cover for crime. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, this guy was taking her to jail. He wanted the money from the reward for turning her over to the cops. By the time Kate realized that that was what this dude did, she was already in the car being settled with you know the detective that was going to take her to you know back to where she belonged or what have you so she went on ahead and she got captured how Kate ended up in Australia of all places on a random farm with an old guy with one arm I don't know but she did and this is how she ended up on this flight Jack the way that he ended up on the flight was that His dad was a drunk and unfortunately he became less functional as the time went by and that dysfunction caused his dad who was the head surgeon at the hospital that they both worked at he would take him a little something you know it started it, it it got out of control he could no longer control himself so he would get smashed before he would have surgery Jack being the straight-laced Ivy League overachiever, um, just good old American boy that Jack is, he had an ethical dilemma on his hands because during a procedure, namely a surger, surgery that he and his dad were working on, Jack was not able to save the person's life of of the woman that he had to do surgery on. But that was because Jack had decided that he needed to take the surgery over from his dad who had already for lack of better words fucked this lady up because he was drunk tripping and slipping cut the wrong artery or something and caused this lady to die. Jack tried to go swoop in and save the day. His Faux pas, let's just say, if we can call murdering a woman on the surgery table a faux pas because of this and the way that it looked to onlookers, this was something that could easily be lied about. So, if you were on the lower spectrum of ethics or morality, you would have absolutely no problem when you go before the board. Because when you have a person die in surgery, they have to review that by the board to ensure that there is no neglect, and that when the family tries to come and sue y'all asses for long for wrongful death, that you can basically talk your way out of it. Jack's dad did that. As the head surgeon of this hospital, Jack's dad had the kind of street cred that people had faith in him like a priest. He could do no wrong, and even if he could do wrong, the last thing that people would do is assume that he had done something negligent. Jack is sitting across from his dad, hearing his dad do it in this patronizing, oh, there was nothing that could be done. I mean, we did our best and unfortunately the patient couldn't, couldn't handle the blood pressure of, you know, trying to have their artery fixed or something. And the guy on the board is eating it up. He's like, yeah, you know, I know, I know, you know, you the head surgeon and We know this is just a part and parcel of you doing your job. And forgive us for asking you two or three more times what actually happened because we know that you the expert here. We just running around in your expertise. Jack sits there. And at first, he apparently had agreed. But by the end of that, Jack's conscience was kicking his ass. Because he could not do it anymore. And at the end or the conclusion of that interview, he had to confess that he is withdrawing his initial accounting of what happened. He said, my dad was drunk and he cut that artery. And that's why that lady died. That procedure was not something that was life or death whatsoever. This started the dad under on the trajectory of being investigated and thereby dismissed from that hospital. If we could put fired as dismissed. Because you can't be no damn drunk surgeon. And you can, but you can't be cutting on people while you're drunk. This being what should be the rock bottom for his dad caused his dad to spiral downhill even more so. Because if he didn't have a reason to drink... You know, if you were drunk and you drink just because, you know, drinking's good and fun or whatever, you really have a, a, a reason to drink. Basically, when you're a drunk, when you have a reason to drink, it's not probably a good, it's not going to be a good day because you really, I mean, you're already overdoing it. But how do you do it when you got a good reason, when you're actually depressed? I mean, that must be terrible. So his dad found himself in Australia. And Jack went to Australia to see about his dad because while his dad was in Australia, he died. So during the course of landing, if we can call crashing landing, Kate has it eventually exposed that she was a fugitive and she was handcuffed to this guy and there was a briefcase that he had and there was paperwork that someone found that kind of gave a bit of a description about the fugitive and her name and you know things like that so unfortunately Kate is found out by Jack which initially is kind of sad not in a I'm a cry way but just in a I feel bad for the ship that's trying to sail remember I'm not going to pretend like I don't see y'all shell sailing the damn ship. I'm just not personally gonna sail the ship. Jack and Kate are the obvious couple on this show. But Jack cannot trust Kate. And that lack of trust, that inability to really believe really what Kate's saying and doing, it wedges, it 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 draws a wedge between them. That makes what should be easy love not happen. I am in season three, episode two or so. They have not gotten it in yet. And I don't mean like sex only. When I say get it in, sometimes I just mean, you know, do what people that like each other do other than sex. They haven't done that yet. And I know it's because Jack doesn't trust her. And because he does not trust her and because she can't get him to trust her. They've never had a way to cross the boundary of, oh, we super close and we be together all day, every day. And we give each other the eye and we miss each other when we're not around, but we never tell each other. And we're upset when we don't include each other on these little missions around the island, but we've just never had that moment when we're closing in on each other and about to kiss. And the moment that they do have like that is a very weird unchemistried moment. Is that a word? Unchemistried? There's zero spark. None. So I can get it out of the way. Sawyer. Sawyer is the name that um the other, let's just say, lead character has on the show. And this lead character is played by Josh Holloway. I cannot remember the newer version of um, shows that I've seen Josh Holloway on. Maybe I should look it up and quit being lazy. But he is very attractive. Extremely attractive. And I have seen him on other stuff. But for some reason, I don't know if it was his hair or what it was. But it just didn't land for me. It wasn't that he wasn't cute. It's just that Lost is his prime. And um, I guess he can't help that. He just looks good in his prime. Josh is. Josh. Um, <laughs> James Sawyer. His real name is James, but he goes by Sawyer. Sawyer is a very interesting character. And he's somebody you like. He's not somebody that you're going to hate. Even though he proffers himself as a bad guy, he really isn't. He is a guy who is willing. He's, what's the best way you can just, I can describe him? Sawyer is that guy who has a freaking huge heart, but just does everything he can to make people not like him, but they end up liking him anyway. That's the best way that I can describe him. He, in his normal life, his flashbacky life, is a ladies' man, and he's gorgeous. So that's an obvious easy area for him but he uses that in order to con them into giving him what he wants and not sex because that's kind of too easy but Sawyer had a man when he was younger con his mom out of the money that they had and he ended up killing the mom or the dad or something like that and Sawyer has this chip on his shoulder the size of Mount Everest because of this guy the guy that did it his name was Sawyer so for some reason (laughs) James aka Sawyer decided that he was going to go under this name and I think that he's using Sawyer as a bit of a shield or a wall to build around himself to make people think he's just a scoundrel and maybe he does feel bad because Everything that Sawyer was trying to do in order to find this person and kill this person for doing it because the way he ended up in Australia is that he went to Australia looking for Sawyer. Um, He ended up becoming Sawyer. So the very thing, seducing his mom and getting them out of all their money, that's exactly what he turned into. Whereas at the beginning, he was attempting to find Sawyer because birds of a feather and I guess he figured that at some point he'd be he, he would be easy to find on the con circuit or something so he had these woman after woman after woman where he would do this he would have an intimate encounter with them have a little pillow talk after the fact get up because he's got to quote go to work pull on his already open, strategically opened suitcase and all this money would, fi- would fall out. It would be thousands of just banded together money when the reality was it was actually a real bill on top but newspaper cut into the shape of money on the bottom so it just looked like he had a whole bunch of money but what he would do was when the money spilled out on the floor he'd pretend to be like damn, you wasn't supposed to see that, and she'd get all, you know, eyes would be big like half dollars, and she'd be like, oh my god, where'd you get all that, and she'd, he'd say, you know, just act like you didn't see this, I'm on my way to meet my investor, I've got a deal where I can win three to one, you know, three times the money that I'm investing, and I gotta go talk to him, and hopefully he don't stand me up, but you know, I'll, I'll check you later, cutie or whatever and before they get out of the bed he asks the woman what she wants he's so good at what he does that she always says him and I suppose that's the precursor for her so that she can try everything that she can to keep him he has already done the intel on this woman and so this is not just some woman he met at the club this is a woman who's got a man who's got money Either she's going through a divorce with a man who's rich, or she's still married to the man, and the con comes in where she offers to give him a hundred k, or geez What is it, guys? A hundred thousand, whatever the hell it is, and so. He's like, nah, you don't want to do this. You can't even need, even if, even if I agreed, you can't even get it. You can't get your hands on that kind of money. And she's like, um, I am about to be divorced in 2.5 seconds. I'm going to get this a third of what I'm going to get. And so he's like, are you serious? And she is like, look, I just want you. I am happy. You make me happy. You make me feel good. And I need you to, yeah, let me invest with you and let's run off together. So he's like, "Okay, let's meet at this place and that place if she's still married." She says, he says, "Hey, you got to play married now. You got to you can't already know me." And they meet up and, you know, he cons them the back way. One of these times he cons a woman, but he actually falls in love with her. And right before the deal is about to be done where he's about to, you know, he he ends up being confronted by somebody he owed money to. And he tells the guy, look, I can't do it because, no. And the guy's like, oh, so you you just go catch some feelings, huh? Well, you owe me some catch feelings. And I don't mean the kind you got for her. I mean, you owe me some money. So you're going to do this. And he's like, no, nah, man, I don't, you know, I, I made her think that I wasn't trying to con her. And I taught her how to con when the reality was, this was the ultimate con because I was still conning her. And he's like, look, Boohoo or something but you're doing this so he got her killed because they tried to escape he tried to let her run now remember Sawyer's down in Australia or whatever so she got killed and this is something that haunts him and Sawyer is the type of guy where yes he's doing unscrupulous things he's 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 that guy who wants money the fast way, which inevitably puts you in the way of doing shady, skeet, janky stuff. But Sawyer really don't mean no harm, really. He is not the type that's going to kill you. He's not the type that's going to rape you. He's not even going to steal from you. He is going to make you feel like you are a part of the entire process. But he's still gonna rob you blind. Sun and Chin. Sun is Sun Huakon and Chin Suquon. <sighs> I am trying my best to um uh, okay. So you guys know how I am. I am like an aspiring polyglot. I love languages. And as an aspiring polyglot or language learner, you might not be able to speak a whole hell of a lot of whatever languages you're learning. At this point, I can speak a lot of Korean. But I'm never gonna sound like I'm from Pusan, okay? These two here are Korean. Fine. I do know that people are born other places, they go other places, they do other things. I realize this, guys. These two. Provide for us our let's just say I hate to say foreign because everybody damn near on the show is foreign because nobody it ain't but one person on the island from Australia so everybody's a foreigner but her technically but these are our foreigners they're the ones who give us our subtitle fix because they speak they speak Korean and nobody's gonna have a problem with that most people are not gonna have a problem with them speaking Korean. You might have a problem with the speaking Korean right off the bat because you can tell when um, they're having private conversations because the writers and the directors decided not to make us privy to that. They decided not to give us subtitles for that. I can tell what they're saying anyway. I can get the gist of it. So thankfully, I I don't need subtitles when they're trying to be all secretive. But if you watch the show, you can still tell what they're talking about. What is my bone to pick? Well, if you've ever seen Black Summer, you know that there is a Korean character or two on there. And they can't speak Korean, guys. You're not going to notice it. You are not going to notice it. You're going to be like, what's the problem? But when you are a language learner, you learn tone, you learn pitch, you learn dialect, and you learn accent. Everybody has an accent. Your accent is, the accent is probably one of the more difficult parts of a a language to learn because regardless of, unless you learn a language when you're in the primary stages of single digits, like between one and four, you're not going to sound like, you can sound like a native, but it is not going to be subconsciously. You're going to have to go above and beyond your own personality. To sound like whatever language you're speaking unless it is one that is close to your mother language. So the romance languages, you can probably get closer to those accents than you can in any of the other ones because they use a Latin letter system. I mean, the letters and the sounds you're all familiar with. You're not probably going to do that if you try to speak Chinese or Japanese, though. You can get close and you can really sound good. But a person who was born in Shanghai is probably going to be able to tell that you're not born there unless you really dig in and do your thing. Son, and uh, her husband do not speak Korean as their first language. And this bothers me. Why? Because there are so many actual Korean people they could have gotten to do this. Now, for this show's purposes... Um, I guess maybe I can forgive them doing that with Sun, meaning get a, getting a Western Korean person to speak this language because Sun is hiding the fact that she knows fluent English from her husband. And that's important because Chin um, Su is very controlling, but really not in a like Turner kind of a way, but in a very Asian way which is hard to describe but he's not intimidating and I don't know if it's just because I'm all from America what have you and you scare me and so we the same height or something I don't know what the problem is but Jin Soo does not scare you he does not make you think that he's going to um pop you in the eye or something but he does complain about every damn thing so he doesn't really like her talking to people And she you know, she talks to people, and he's super possessive, and who knows what the hell Jin's problem is about that Jin-soo, because um, Jin-soo in their real life, he is basically, what do we want to call it, Uh, a damn hitman? I mean, really, patriarch, Korean culture is very patriarchal, which means that you have to have your parents' permission when you get ready to marry. Like, if they say no, the answer is no. Like, how the hell is the answer no because because of who I love? Like, I'm on him. You know, and they set you up on, they tell you who you're going to marry is the bottom line. Okay? So, Jinsu not being a choice by her dad is a big deal. Jinsu has to get in good with her dad. And he has to not only get in, but stay in good. The problem of um, hierarchical and honorific societies is the fact that the man is the um, has the final say, and where that might not be a problem for some people, it can cause you as a nation to do some to ca- your people will do things that they would not normally do. chimsu is a good guy. He comes from a fishing village. And when you don't live in Seoul or Gangnam or um, maybe some parts of Busan, um, those city folks look down on you from coming from the country. We may have versions of that in the United States, but it's really prevalent when you live in other countries, namely Korea. And Jinsoo comes from a country, he comes from a family that, you don't tell people, your dad, catch fish for a living. Because that's seen as the type of embarrassment maybe an American child back in the day would have for a janitorial parent, like a parent who's a janitor. And I think it's the name, like, gosh, they need some different names. Because nowadays, all you have to do is say, like, your your dad's a waste management engineer, but he actually just... You know dumps the trash can like he's the trash guy but he's like a freaking eco-friendly engineer or something. He would never have had a snowball's chance in hell with Son, is what I'm trying to say. If he would have been you know uh, proud about being a fisherman. Son, she comes from a fall she sees a Ball's child. ball is the Korean word that I just butchered for the progeny of a businessman who directly adds to Korean economies okay so these are the Samsung's of the country these are the people who you know work at Hyundai the children of those families um I don't give a damn what year it is it could be 3,022 if you don't think that you're marrying exactly who your parents pick for you, you wrong, okay? You're gonna marry whoever they say you marry. Why? I don't know, because they buy your soul. I don't know why, but she, as a ball's daughter, can't just marry anybody. But guess who she likes? Yes, Chinsu. So, Chinsu has to do what men who have a low status in a country like that do he has to grovel he has to lower himself even lower than he naturally would so in an honorific society you gonna lower yourself baby because if you don't you can't live here no more you gotta go but he lowers himself in every imaginable way and the reason why I say when you're in a country that's honorific and hierarchical like that and hierarchy and honorifics on their face there's nothing wrong necessarily if that's how you choose well however you choose to live is what you want to do the reason why I say it puts the nation's people in such a precarious situation is because it makes people do things to harm themselves it makes people resort to lifestyles that mess them up Chinsu had to lower himself So far that he does not say no to his grand his grandfather. He does not say no to her father. Honorific societies. You can't say no to an elder. I don't give a damn what they ask you to do or what they say. You can't say no. Now, do people say no? I'm pretty damn sure. Those who have nothing to lose, or those who are, you know, in high school who are invincible, they probably don't give a damn about saying um no. But when you become an adult and you want to be functional in society and when you want some status in that society, you're going to do whatever the hell they tell you to do. Yes, it causes the work culture to be weird because that senior associate can make you do whatever they want you to do. We all liberated over here and it's like, ooh, my representation and I'm, oh, you can't discriminate, baby. That is alive and well over there. And matter of fact, that's the way it is. In the real world, people are going to discriminate against you. So Chinsu lowers himself so much that he tells her dad, you know what? I will do anything for your daughter because it, that's how much I like her. The dad knowing that, and again, this causes somebody in a position like that to abuse you. And he's like, well, you're going to do whatever I say. Well, he's like, well, go to this. Person's house and tell them that this their last chance. And he go over there and he's like, "Yeah, this is you know your last chance. Don't do it again. You know, bye. You know." He's like, he walks to the door. He's like, "I'm Yonsei Oh," and the guy's like, "You were with who?" And he's like, "I just came to tell you this your last chance." And the guy was like, "That's it." And Shinso's like, "That." And he's like, "You know what?" i'm going to give you a present let me give you this gay which is a dog he takes his baby who is like eight or nine years old he takes her brand new pug puppy and gifts it to chinsu he's so happy that mr Sun's dad you know only had a verbal message Sun's dad is like what you say you did he was like i went over there and i was like yeah um you got your last chance, it's your last chance, and his dad was like, dude, so he calls in his henchman, and this guy rides over, takes the limo, what have you, over to the guy's house, and while they in the limo, the guy is putting on gloves, and he tells the driver, I'll be five minutes, we'll be right back, so they go back up to the guy that took his child's pug and gifted it to Ching Tzu, knocks on the door, And Chinsu, who's a little slow, puts two and two together and realizes, wow, that was the message I actually was supposed to have. So Chinsu is like, hold my beer to the guy who's still like trying to fit his hands into a glove. And he beats the entire hell out of that guy within an inch of his life and then tells him this is your last chance. This is who Chinsu is. He has turned into a monster when he leaves the house. And a super duper secretive husband when he comes home. He does seem to love her. He does seem to have affection for her. But you can't be a hitman at night and it not affect your damn personality or what have you. So he is a little closed. Every time they're having dinner, right before they can, you know, pick up their chopsticks. His dad calling, her dad's calling like, hey, what's up? I need you to go do this hit real quick. Jinsu does not have the option of saying, hey, can I eat first? No. So son, being the stupid person she is, I'm sorry. But how the hell can you not know your dad is Mr. Killer around Korea or something? How do you not know your dad's a mafia guy? She's all upset. She's all feeling neglected because Jin Su's got to go again. He never has time for me. I'm always alone. And it's like, girl, what did you think your husband was going to be doing when he went to work for your dad? Your dad hides behind having a printing company or something innocuous like that. But the reality is, even if Jin Su was getting paper cuts all night from running copies, copies off, He was still going to have to do that as, as much and as hard as he's going to have to go out and break necks and, you know, um, beat people up. Like you're still going to have to do that. I don't understand why she's making that an issue instead of getting her whole life and enjoying her time alone. Like, why aren't you doing that? Okay. So son can speak English and at some point she reveals it to everybody else on the island. But she doesn't tell her husband. Now, he finds out. But she doesn't tell him because I think that as I'm going to find or we are going to find out in as the season unfolds, you know, the way she learned English is little jank. She learned it from another dude, A. And B, Jinsu is the kind of guy that's so proud that he would see her knowing English fluently as a betrayal, you know, as her rejecting him on some fundamental level, so she instinctually knows to never let on that she knows exactly what everybody around her saying. But since they're stranded on that de- on a desert island, she has to reveal it. Son's story, son again is a Chapewall's daughter who doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to do except shop and stuff. But she's not shallow, I have got to give that to her. Son, son is very, um, Sunpot is very emotional but in a heartfelt way she's the type of person you want on a desert island with you too why because she can garden she's got a green thumb she knows her way around you know her dad might be killing people at night but somebody in her family was teaching her how to feed herself so I'm not understanding why Qin Su could not have had a blissful life in the countryside with um, Sun, Sun Hua I do know why because in a Korean culture, you don't just leave home, you get married from home. So your first time on your own is in the house with your husband. So, you know, you might be 26, but mentally you're 12. You know, you don't have that grit that we have in the West for moving out as soon as we graduate high school. So she she was never going to do that, but I think that between him catching fish and you growing all the damn vegetables? I mean, y'all gonna eat every day. Either way, y'all eat every day. Y'all fool every day. So anyway, she don't have all that damn much to do. And remember, as a chapeau's child, you marry who they say marry. And the way that you marry who they say marry is they set up these cringy ass blind dates. Now, we do blind dates in the States as like a um, a niche. Not a niche. What do we do? It's a novelty, isn't it? If you go on a blind date with somebody, it's kind of something you don't do often or something you've never done, or if you do it, you don't do it that much. And it's kind of fun to a certain degree because, you know, if the best case scenario is that this person doesn't have three eyes or something, and you can actually, you know, have a good time out of it, even if you never call them again. In a country like Korea, which is not the only country that does this clearly, um, it's more of a job. It's like a job. It's your part-time job. You might go to a job early in the day. You might go to college, but for four hours out your day, you spend on blind dates. Now I'm being a little, you know, I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit, but not on the aspect of that type of family. They are going to set you up on blind dates. And this is going to be somebody that they have chosen for you. The only good thing I can see about blind dates is with these types of families is they typically will choose somebody who own paper looks good. So you don't have to worry about this guy crawling in off the street, living in their mom's basement, working at Burger King. No, this guy has got to have a top company job. He has got to have money. He has got to come from money. So if you're the type of person who status is your thing and looks are secondary, you can't lose with the blind dates because now he might look like the bottom of a shoe but he's got money and he's got some social status and he might have some prestige this says nothing about him as a person but he will have that resume so that's kind of maybe the only thing about a blind date now if he comes in there looking like you know looking good then hey I guess we about to get an arranged marriage around here so She gets hooked up with this guy. He's Korean. Look, let me say this. It seems like the entire cast of Koreans that they chose for this show. Let me say this. They must have shot this show in an area of Koreatown in California. Because nobody on this show sounds like they speak Korean as their first language. And I don't mean a Korean that knows English. I mean a person who grew up in America. Who English is their first language and if they know English, uh, Korean real good, it's like their Korean is like my Korean. Like they know Korean too. And there are some Korean words I say better than them. That should not be happening. Okay. It shouldn't be happening for obvious reasons. I should never sound better than them speaking Korean. It just shouldn't happen. So she gets hooked up with this guy who marginally speaks better. His his fluency is better. Like his his tone is better. He's just better at it. It's more pleasant to listen to. Um to listen to him speak. It's also more pleasant to listen to the older people like her dad, the, her mom, and you know, because they are Western as hell. Like they live in LA, but they just can't they just know Korean. Um he's bald, which I like. I love it when I see a bald character because He's being real with himself. His hair has left him and he's just going to rock that bald look and do what he got to do and just get in where he fit in. And I like that. It's also not common. You see a lot of bald Asian men because Asian men love their hair. And I think a lot of them go that extra step to make sure they can keep it. And that's that's just an assumption. But he's cute with his bald head. And they, they talk and all that stuff. And at some point in some dinner that they've had, he starts to talk about how, you know, gosh, we're on these blind dates and huh, we're making our families happy. And son's looking at him all bashfully and, you know, kind of embarrassed how you look at somebody when you like them a whole lot. And so she's like, he's like, yeah, because, you know, in a few months now, I'm going to L.A. to marry an American girl. So, you know, this should get them off our back for a little while. Now, that didn't make any sense when he said that, because it's like, dude, how the hell are you going to make your mom happy if you go abroad and marry an American like I don't know what that means son's face falls because she is in love with this guy like she likes him but son I like son son has a heart she's not the, the the loathsome unwatchable character that she would be if she was in a Korean drama but she hides it unsuccessfully you know, the waiter comes and he starts to take the order and son's like, Oh, yeah. Um, so I am uh I gotta go. I got another appointment. And the ball guy's like, Wait a minute. I cause he looks at her and the way her countenance falls, she's trying to keep it together, but it falls. He can tell that she meant every damn thing. Like she was digging him and not on a platonic level. So he's like, No, wait, wait, wait. I didn't know you was actually like we're actually, you actually doing this? And she's like, you know what? I'm good. I will see you later. Adios, or wherever you're going, I'm gone. Sun meets Chinsu because Chinsu works at the door. He's a doorman at the Ritzy Hotel or what have you that they're eating at. And they don't meet right then and there. But Sun is like walking in a park and Chinsu is... You know, she's close to that hotel and chin is walking home because, you know, he broke because his dad catch fish. And uh they bump into each other. It's love at first sight, at least on chin end. And, you know, that's how their love story starts. John Locke. John Locke is one of our more mature characters. One of our over 50 characters. And when he first lands... He's laying down and he looks up at his feet. And at first I'm thinking, yeah, that makes sense. You just freaking crashed out of the sky. Maybe you do get up and look at your feet like, I can't believe I'm here. Um, But John Locke ends up being, it turns out that he was a paralyzed person. And just to give you some clue about the mystique of this island, because this island is creepier than hell. Some weird supernatural type things are going on because John Locke is paralyzed from the waist down. But when he gets off the plane, he can walk. So don't ask me what happened. Don't ask me why. I do not know why, but he can walk. But I'm all like, oh, I think I might take this. I think I might have to eat fish and suns, vegetables. She going back there. I might have to eat that for the rest of my life. Even if they come rescue us, I'm staying because I can walk here. If you take me over there, I can't go. And where here is, it's this place that's a thousand miles off course from Australia. The first thing I thought of when they said this was the Bermuda Triangle. I, they did not say that. But for the the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to say they are in the Bermuda Triangle, baby. And everybody who is of a certain age knows that the Bermuda Triangle is the twilight zone of the ocean. You know what I'm saying? Like everything in the Bermuda Triangle goes. Like it's weird stuff. So my opinion is if you could not walk on that damn plane, but your ass walked off the plane after a crash, you are on Bermuda Triangle Island. Okay. John Locke is the guy you want. If I had to pick any of the people that I'm naming now, now I might have to choose Sun and Chinsu. Because even though Chinsu was ashamed of his dad, which he ended up coming back to himself and coming back to his hometown and apologizing to his dad and crying. And his dad just loved him so much. He was like, that's okay. Don't you won't have nothing to apologize. I love you. You are always welcome here. And the dad just broke my heart. He was loving he was kind he spoke real korean um i loved him i really did and i think Soo, because he quit his job after he um was told hey i want you to work this door but don't let anybody in here like you and chinsu was like this motherfucker got his nerve but he actually did do that itself a little kid who had a regular dad he had to pee real bad one day and Chinsu had a a moral dilemma. He was like, do I tell him to go down the street and risk this little four-year-old peeing on himself? Or do I do the right thing and treat these people as human beings and let them do it? So this is the reason why when Chinsu and Sun met, it was just, you know, serendipity. Because he was storming off after quitting. And she was storming off after having her heart crushed. Anyway, John Locke, he can walk. And that wasn't evident at, at the beginning. So him being paralyzed is something they reveal kind of like in season two. So I'm not going to go there too much. Just keep that in mind that John Locke is paralyzed in the real world. <laughs> John Locke is the guy you want on your team. At first I didn't because he had an injury where one of his eyes, you know how you get cut, how that villain in a movie has that vertical cut, that's like a long three inch gash on your forehead, skips the eye and then goes back down the cheek. I think that's such a an awesome um, injury to have when they put that on people. It automatically makes you menacing. And I think that John, I don't I think I feel like now that I'm thinking about it now, it was bloody and red and fresh at that time. But I kind of see that as a foreshadowing that he's probably going to become the villain of the show and that'll be for reasons that we'll get into but John Locke is the guy you want on your team how can I describe John Locke John Locke is a fun fact just powerhouse and what do I mean by that and maybe that's not the right word but he is resourceful he's the guy who knows all those nice fun prepper facts that nobody knows he's the guy that can build things he's the guy that knows how to make paste out of mud a little tree bark powder and some grass he's the guy who is able to go out into the forest where very weird and strange and crazy things happen catch wild boar bring it back slaughter it you know um take the skin off you know the hair off what do you call that shave the hide down cook it up give it to you he's the guy that is going to volunteer to go and. I mean John is that guy there is nothing that he can't do at first appearance he seems like um the best way I can describe it is like an adult geek but not with glasses on just that guy you're not checking for he's the guy that works at Home Depot that's just like a little bit too old to still be the stalker you know like the guy who works at the grocery store and even though he's a manager he's just like a scooch too old to still be doing that job. In the real world, he works at a boxing company. You know, like literal like boxes that you use to um, move. He works at a company like that, and he's not a high level position. He's the guy that's got one of those unassuming jobs, but he knows so much. Like he knows more than the CEO, yet he works at a cubicle. You know, he's the guy that will come to work and set off a bomb that will you know, make the whole building fall. He's that guy that you push too far one day and he like wipes out the whole building. Now he's not psycho and he is just as nice as he can be. But this is just an example of how resourceful he is and how you he's a sleeper. You be sleep on him. John Locke, you don't check for him. Nobody checks for John Locke, nobody. He is the guy that needed an opportunity to shine. And unfortunately, where everybody else is like, you know, when we get rescued, when we get rescued, when the planes come, when they find us, when they find us. John literally says out of his mouth, I like it here. I don't want to leave. I want to stay. Yeah. He has more purpose and usefulness than he has ever had in his life. He is a person. He is the most. He is important here. He's not important in his real life. He is just another stat. John everything that he has been shelving away in his mind is a little fun fact that I'll covet for myself is not only useful but it is saving people's lives and he is making him somebody that people admire look up to depend on nobody depends on John back at boxing company alley nobody cares about him over there they care about him here John is one of the chief people on the island I don't mean he's like the chief but People go to him to problem solve. Where Jack is the doctor, John is everything else. He is that guy. He is like a Swiss Army knife, where there are like every where there's a compass, uh, some scissors, a screwdriver, you know, a frying pan. Everything that you could need on this knife. That is John. In John's real life, he is a man who is past his prime. But he's still strong. He's mentally quirky because he has a deep wound in his spirit over being an adopted child. Like, his parents don't exist. When he gets older, his mom finds him. She's a redhead that looks kind of janky, and she rolls up on him. And he's like, What's up? And she's like, What's up? And he's like, What's up? And she's like, I'm your mom. And he's like, Okay. And she's like, I didn't want to tell you this, but you know, I don't know how you're going to react, but your dad says, what's up? And he's like, what? And she's like, he said, what's up? So he goes to visit his dad who lives in the mansion. And he's like, what's up? And his dad's like, want to go hunt? John is like 57 or something. You know, like John is that age where it's like, okay, dude, I'm not sure how this works now, but if you weren't a parent to me, we have passed the point of even being friends. You know what I'm saying? We just have to kind of dab it out. Uh, Good luck. And maybe if I see you or something, maybe I'll give you a head nod or something. But like, we good. Like you good. We good. I got grandchildren. Shit. You know what I'm saying? So I have grandchildren. Your ass is too late. There is a such thing as too late. and And John's dad is like too late. But John's dad being the white-haired, smooth talker he is, sits down, has a drink with him, and talks to him. And kicks that that game that only somebody that's almost 70 years old or so with a whole lot of money can. They can just talk to you and pick up as if you didn't neglect me for 60 years. Like, this is how this guy's talking to him. Two or three expeditions of pigeon hunting and John shooting down with accuracy and all that him and the dad or BFFers because John his big ass heart has wanted a dad all his life and for him to find this dad and this dad to be so handy you know like he hunts John's the guy that instead of buying a butter ball for Thanksgiving he'd rather go shoot it defeather it and cook it that way, and have found his match, as it were, and then this matches my dad, he and John didn't give a damn about the money, the money wasn't, wasn't nothing even, no, so the dad, kicking that smooth game that only a rich old dude can do, strategically sets it up so that John gets to the house, and he is like, oh, I didn't know you were busy, and he's like, oh, dude, you you know what? I accidentally told you to come over here at the wrong time. We can still go hunting. But I got to finish this dialysis real quick. So let me, you know. So the nurse leaves and it's super awkward because John's like, I don't want to watch you die every day when I come over here. And the dad's like, dude, you know, me either. I've been on the list for so long. And, you know, all this damn money I got. One damn thing it can't do is buy you a liver because your ass ain't on that list. You ain't getting nothing. So John's like, or kidney. Sorry, guys. Because you got two of those, right? Okay. So kidney. John's like, I mean, I got an extra kidney or whatever if you want to, you know, borrow that one and shit. And the dad's like, Are you sure? And John's like, Dude, you are my dad. I love you. We had went bird hunting three times. I think that I can trust you with a part of my body. So they make an appointment, and they go in there and they happy. They just as jovial as they can be, sitting on the bed, about to swap bodies. So John goes through with the surgery. He gives that man a kidney. And John is in recovery. And He wakes up to the nurse and the nurse is like, oh, okay, we got this stat over this. And want some ice cream? John, old big 57-year-old ass, want some ice cream? And he's like, "Um, nah, I want my daddy. Big ass asking for his daddy. He's like, who? She like, who? And he's like, you know, Big John Locker, whatever his name was, I don't remember. And she's like, boy, Big John ass is gone. And he's like, What you say? And she was like, Oh, he got moved to a private room. So John's like, Okay. He rips the IV out. And remember, John is that resourceful dude that even after he just had his kidney yanked out of his back, he gets up anyway, he gets to his little red bug, which I love, by the way, um, and goes to the house. A house that's gated, where you have the guard literally in his own little tower. But this day, This guard is acting brand new. He all like, what? And John is like, what's up? And the the security guard is like, what do you want? And John is like, dude, please stop acting like you don't know who my daddy is and who I am. And the security guard is like, uh, Big John ain't here. He ain't here. (laughs) So he's like, oh my God. Okay, fine. So he leaves. And John, for the next several weeks, starts to stalk out big john now i don't know if his name is big john because i wasn't you know paying attention to the name but he stalks big john out to the point where big john has to come out and sit in his car and say dude i see you stalking me every day um, i need you to leave you're making me nervous and john is like i would not have to stalk you if you would stop acting brand new and uh tell me what's up and he's like dude just don't come back so he leaves and the dad moves away and if anybody ever, ha- you know, because one day um, somebody was playing a violin over their own sad sob story. And I can't remember who it was. And I wish I could. But John is like, he's sitting around and he starts to get fed up because he's like, your mom, you know, what you say? Your mom was mad at you because you ate all the peanut butter. Are you kidding me? My dad stole my liver and then left. And then my mom, she set me up for my dad to steal my liver. And then she left and I can't find her. So you talk about your mom max, you ate all the peanut butter. My dad stole my peanut butter. The one that was in my back. And so that person is sitting around looking stupider than hell because nobody has a story to top this. And so John goes and he kind of starts to live out there in the forest a little bit because he just can't take the simpleness of us common folk who have not had parents steal our organs. Saeed is a solid character. There are things about Saeed that I'm just like, "Uh, sometimes I'm waiting. You know, Saeed, I'm waiting for him to do something that I don't like. But so far, he's only done things that I kind of like. He is, um, at one point, was talking to somebody, and they were like, "Yeah, you ever uh, heard of the Iraq War?" And he was like, "Yeah," and they were like, "Oh yeah, cause my cousin fought in it." And he was like, "Me too." And he was like, "Oh man, that's cool." And he was like, "Yeah, I was on Iraq side," and the guy was like, "Oh." slowly walking away like oh fuck no you actually were the oh we were fighting you yeah so Saeed used to be a an army personnel for the Iraqi folks and he was promoted to a position where he basically tortured people for a living to get the secrets ain't no other way to say that on the island he is kind of our tech wizard he is able to you know, splice this wire, twist that wire, and now we got a receiver or something. He's that guy. Naveen is that solid lead character who has a heart bigger than his body. He will help anybody, but he will also take shoots of bark and jam them up your fingernails if you won't tell him the truth, like he did to Sawyer once. So, I mean, you know, you know bittersweet I guess that's the bitter part of Saeed but even with the torture there are certain points and certain people that they confront that you're like Saeed say Saeed make Saeed Saeed make him um confess and that's what you get with Saeed he will make you confess another couple of notable characters I'll talk about briefly so this episode is a 15 hours long is uh, Claire. Claire is a young lady who is pregnant on the island and ends up giving birth on the island. I know at first it's like oh my gosh how did you fall out of the sky and not give birth and sometimes it seems like she's pregnant for too long but she finally has the baby and the baby's fine. Um, She's just young. Um, she's the only Aussie on the show which makes her the native and everybody else the foreigner. Um, Then you have um Michael Michael is a black guy I cannot remember what he used to play on it was so popular though I have to look it up and I think I might have to make a part two for season two because I thought I'd be able to go over season one and two in this but it seems like an intro is all I'm gonna get out of this But he's a solid character. He's a really good character, really impassioned character. One of those people that I'm pretty sure had a Broadway past. Because you could just tell he knows what the hell he's doing and don't care. He has zero self-consciousness. And it makes him lend an honesty to every role. Even if he's playing a janky character, it's like, yes, you seem janky in real life. But Harold has a son and his name is Walt. And Walt is about 10 and they come as a pair and they fall out of the sky. And his whole journey so far has been to keep his son safe. Um, the mother of the child back in his flashbacky life, um, she left him for someone else and she took the child with her, but she ended up getting sick and died. And then Walt all of a sudden was a single father and he's got his son now and his son and he are attempting to forge their way. With each other because they don't know each other, and but um, Michael loves his son because as a baby he loved him and really tried to fight the mother over custody, but he just didn't have the money. The mom, she was the brains of the the couple, and she went on to have a flourishing career, whereas Michael was a struggling artist. And no matter how good you paint, Picasso was not making millions when he was alive. So you have to die to make it. I mean, damn. So Walt is a young boy who gravitates toward John and Michael doesn't like it. He has had to go toe to toe with John. They didn't fight, but he had to get in his face a couple times and say, leave my son alone. Because John Locke just kind of poses as, I think, a threat. Not really a threat, as in John Locke would do anything to harm the son. I mean, he's taught the son backgammon. He's teaching the son his survivalist type of skills. I think that John serves as a warning that if Michael does not get his shit together fast, that Walt is going to find another father, another father beyond him. John has those qualities that a young person will gravitate toward because John is patient. And despite what I described about you know, the kidney's still in dad. He's a very kind, level-headed, reasoning person. And I think Michael is jealous of that. And he doesn't want his son exposed to somebody who might have more influence over him than he does. So that is a bone of contention with him. And unfortunately, he probably should have given John a little more, let's just say access to the son as long as he was supervised because Walt got kidnapped taken on the island because as you can imagine this crazy weird supernatural island they're not the only people that are on this island there are other people which they soon find out and these people take Walt Michael's son now the last person that I'm going to talk about or the last few people I'm going to talk about and then I'm going to draw this long episode to an end is Charlie. Charlie's the crackhead of the island. Now you have got to have a crackhead because if you don't your show lacks um crackiness. I don't know. But in his real life he is Irish and he had a band that had some, let's just say, modest level of fame in Ireland. And during the course of that his brother was a crackhead. So he started being a crackhead. And it ruined their career because they were just cracky all the time. And you can't focus on music when you want to get high. He had some 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 spots there where he would ruin a relationship and a job with a woman who had a dad who had um, a lot of money. And I said that son's dad had the printing company. It was actually Charlie's girlfriend's dad who sold the printers. Son's dad probably has a neck-breaking company. He's probably all the way out in the open with his. But... Um, Charlie had a good job, the first job he's probably had in his life, but the crack, it was just too, it was too much for him, he came to the meeting high, and he's supposed to be running off copies or something to present this machine, and he ended up throwing up on people and all this kind of cracky stuff, so, you know, he lost that job and disappointed the aristocrat. I don't want to say aristocratic, but, you know, this was a girl who had Too many expectations for a very crackish boyfriend. She like used, she treated him like a project. It's like, girl, when you met him, he was playing a guitar out of a van. Why do you expect him to be, you know, a corporate Wall Street business guy? Just because he's having sex with you. Girl, he is getting what he wants from you. Now he wants a little crack. You got some crack? Because if you got that, he'll be there with you to the end. So he couldn't hack it there. And he ended up losing out. And now he finds himself on this island where not only does he have to deal with the fact that he's stranded, but he has got to come down off these old cracky tendencies because when the plane was splitting in two and crashing out the sky, he was in the bathroom getting high. And I think I will leave it there on a high note, literally, and go into season two when I come back because Lost is a mouthful. That is not easily described in a short amount of time. But I hope that you have enjoyed, let's just say, an introduction to the characters is what I'm going to call this episode. Because it's an intro and there's no other way that we can put it. Now, before I leave, I am going to introduce one more character who deserves to be in this first batch. Because he is that special. His name is Hugo. Hugo Hurley. Hugo. Oh my gosh. Hugo is about 400 pounds and if he's not he might as well because he's huge and he's got hair gloriously curly long bob length hair and he is just wonderful I love Hurley. Hurley is your very sarcastic very helpful he he follows um Jack around he admires Jack. You can tell he looks up to Jack. Curly is helpful. He is cooperative. He befriends Charlie because they're around the same ageish. He he is just a teddy bear. He is the teddy bear of the island. Everybody likes him. His insecurities afford him more affability. Back in his real world, the flashbacky times, he's that guy that works at. A restaurant who serves food, who goes back to his office and is completely demeaned by his manager simply because he is fat. He is the guy that even into adulthood, he's treated as if he's the fat kid in the in the, the cafeteria. He His self-esteem is nowhere. He doesn't have any. His mother, who he still lives at home with, talks down to him, talks at him. One day on a whim, he plays the lottery. Because what else are you going to do to make your situation different? He wins the lottery. But he is so afraid of the fact that those five or six lucky numbers that he has used is something that's haunting him. Hurley has this fixation on these five or six numbers that continue to spiral in his mind. Hugo was a patient in a mental facility. And while he was in treatment one of the patients constantly chanted this number. Hurley began, Hugo, I'm sorry, Hugo Hurley, Hurley is what they call, he began to internalize this number as well. And when he did, he started to notice that wherever those numbers were, however he used them, it was always bad luck. It was like people around him would get injured or there would be an accident or something terrible would happen to someone. And he hated it. So when he won the lottery, instead of feeling happy and like, oh my God, my life is about to change. Every way. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't even go cash in the ticket. At least at this point where they're describing the show. Because he was afraid. He didn't want to. I'm going to introduce the hatch because it's important to Hugo Hurley's story. He... They discovered a hatch, John Locke, because remember, he's living out in the forest and he's discovering and he's hunting, and he's being all helpful and stuff. He discovers this hatch and this hatch is something that he needs to try to break into. And he's tried everything that he can to break into it, but he can't. On the side of this hatch. Are numbers like a combination, but there are five or six digits. And what digits do you think they are? Yep. The numbers that Hurley is fixated on. And he begs them, do not open it. Don't go in there. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And what do they do? They open it. They go in. And that is the perfect place to stop because it really does give a good segue into the next half or the next season, which is the majority of what season two depicts life inside the hatch.